Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is John Bell. John Bell is an actor, theatre director, and theatre manager. He is the founder of the Bell Shakespeare Theatre Company, which he headed for 25 years. He recently finished a critically acclaimed sold-out run of Cyril Gelly's French thriller Diplomacy at the Ensemble Theatre. He is an officer of the Order of the British Empire, an officer of the Order of Australia, and has been named a national living treasure. John Bell. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Ike. I'm, I want to start by just uh, casting back to when it was that you first encountered Shakespeare I, um, and caught the bug. I've heard that it was during the uh, screening of the Laurence Olivier filming of Henry V. Is that right? Yeah. I, um, I was about uh, 14 at the time, I think, and um, I hadn't encountered Shakespeare before. And, of course, in high school, back then particularly, Shakespeare was taught very badly. The teacher would just throw copies of a play around the room. Each kid would read a line from the play and pass the book on to the next guy. And then you'd have to go home and learn a whole slab off by heart and without knowing what it meant or what the context was. So I think many people were turned off Shakespeare at a very early age. Mm. I, th- I hope things are better now. In my case, I was fortunate. I had two very good English teachers. Um, the first one was the football coach, as well as the English teacher, who's a big guy with a big voice, and he, was, uh, he loved acting, he loved theatre. So he handed out copies of Midsummer Night's Dream around the class. But then instead of getting us to read it, he performed the whole play for us. He would march up and down the aisles, acting all the roles, describing the costumes and the sets and the gags and the pratfalls and the music. So he brought the play alive. It was an instant theatre in the classroom. And so we couldn't wait for the next English lesson and have another chapter of another, or another scene from Midsummer Night's Dream. And so he really opened up the doors for me. And then he took us off to the movies to see those uh, Laurence Olivier movies, Henry V, Hamlet, Richard III. And if there was a Shakespeare show, came to town, a live performance, he would take us to see that. And he encouraged me particularly to, to read and explore um, theatre in all sorts of ways. When he had to leave and another guy took over, he was uh, another theatre nut. He was really loved theatre, he loved poetry, loved Shakespeare. And he was the one who said, you're going to finish high school, then go to university, and then you're going to be an actor. Um, simple as that. And he actually put on a school play night for me. He said, you can design all the costumes and sets and direct the pieces and choose the plays. And so I look back on that now and think what an extraordinary thing that he gave me that opportunity. I went to all that trouble and all that expense. He had to hire all the costumes from Sydney. This was in Maitland, you know, a country town back then. So he made this extraordinary gesture and sacrifice to give me that opportunity. And um, I do wish now I could say thank you, but of course it's too late. I didn't realise at the time just what an enormous uh, thing that was. So I went to university and uh, I studied Shakespeare there, of course, and wrote a thesis, a rather bad thesis on Shakespeare. But I acted most of those four years at university. Uh, university drama was very strong uh, because there wasn't much else happening around Sydney. Uh, we had the Independent Theatre in Sydney and the Ensemble, and that was about it, apart from touring musical productions. There was no real full-time professional theatre company. And those, the, the independent, the ensemble at the time, were students or professional actors? They were, the ensemble was a, um, a kind of a student theatre run by Hayes Gordon as a kind of a, uh, a theatre school, but they also put on plays and they used some professional actors. Most actors in those days learned their livings on radio. Mm-hmm. There was no television, there was very little film, hardly any. So radio was the big industry and radio had lots of dramas and serials going every day and most actors that's where they earned their living and they acted for nothing on stage at night for Hayes Gordon or Doris Fitton at The Independent Um, but there was no very little professional stage work around 
So if you wanted to see Shakespeare or Brecht or Euripides, whatever, you had to come to the university to see, see student productions. And they were quite bold and uh, inventive. And the people around me were a pretty um, exciting bunch of people. Uh, Clive James, Robert Hughes, Jermaine Greer, uh, Munger McCallum, um, uh, oh, and, and people I later worked with, like Richard Werrett and John Gaydon. Uh, it, it was a very uh, lively group of people, very competitive, uh, very inventive. And so what we did was talk theatre and act and perform and put on plays the whole time I was there, which was a great introduction, I think, um, because you make lots of mistakes and nobody really cared. You weren't criticised in the way I would have been if I'd been, uh, if I'd gone to NIDA or been a professional actor. Mm. So after four years of that, um, I then uh, I graduated and then I went to... Uh, then I was lucky, my graduation time coincided with the establishment of the first really full-time professional company of any duration. There had been other attempts, but they hadn't they'd fizzled out. This one was called the Old Tote Theatre, because it was uh, next to the Rambrick Racecourse of the old Total Azeta building. And that was um, begun as a full-time professional theatre company. So I joined that, um, and uh, my wife, my fiancé back then, Anna, joined the company as well. And uh, I played Hamlet in my first season with them. It was I was only 22, I was much too young for it, and inexperienced, but nevertheless I got the role. And the following year I did Henry V at the Adelaide Festival in a circus tent, that was another big stretch. And so by the time I'd finished that, I thought, well, now what? I'm 23 and I've done Hamlet and Henry V. Right. Where do I go from here? And only <laughs> down. So uh, luckily, um, the British, British Council came to me and said, we have some money left over, we've got to spend before the end of the year. Uh, do you want to go to England and study? Uh, acting, and I thought, my God, that's the perfect uh, opportunity and time to do it. So I went to England to the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. After six months, they sent me to audition for the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford. Uh, both Anna and I auditioned and got into the company, and we spent our next four, four and a half years working in Stratford with the Royal Shakespeare Company. So that, in brief, was my sort of uh, very quick transition from schoolboy to professional actor. Fantastic. Mm. I was very fortunate. Did it feel very quick at the time? Oh, no. When you're young, everything's taking far too long. Right. Everything's very slow. Looking back on it, I got opportunities uh, that I didn't really deserve because uh, I wasn't experienced enough. Nevertheless, I took them and ran with them and uh, have no regrets about that. Oh, fantastic. And your first professional role was Hamlet? Yeah, no, I was, my first professional role was in the, the Cherry Orchard. That was the very first play the old Tote did. Uh, and that was followed by a play called The Fire Raises by Max Frisch and then Hamlet. So uh, you're in one play after the other for that whole right. first season. So when, um, when you went into Shakespeare, as when you went and started performing, was there a sort of... Um, you said there was, there was nowhere to go but down from mm. Hamlet and Henry V. Yeah. Did you have that, like, that attitude going in from youth? Like, I want to be Henry V and I want to be Hamlet? Was yeah, that- oh yes. I was uh, very ambitious and quite arrogant about, I'm going to play all those big parts. And uh, so I wasn't surprised to get them. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, that's, that's, that's natural. Sure, sure, I can do that. Uh, looking back on it, I think, wow, how, how dare I do that? But uh, you just do. Um, so I did aspire from very young to play all those big roles. Right. I, I feel like um, almost that in order to, to play those roles as a young man, you sort of have to be way too impudent and... I think the word is chutzpah. You know that word, don't you? Which one? Chutzpah. Chutzpah, yeah. You have to have a lot of chutzpah. You have to have a lot of chutzpah. Uh, But then again, you look back on the the actors I admired, people like Orson Welles, for instance. He made Citizen Kane when he was 24 years old, you know. So people did, if you have have a bit of chutzpah, you get cracking early. Right. And the actors I admired had all done that. They'd all sort of grabbed the opportunities and played the big roles. And they could do them again years later and do them better. But nevertheless, you never knock back an opportunity, I think. Is that, is that, in your experience, a necessity to hit the big roles early? Oh, you're lucky if you get the opportunity. If you, if you possibly can, I think, go for it, yeah. Yeah, it's un- unlike opera singers who shouldn't peak too early. Their voices aren't ready for the big roles. So they've got to be a bit more patient and play smaller roles until the voice grows and develops and is strong enough to sustain performing those huge roles. Mm. Uh, and they can ruin their voices if they, if they peak too early. 
But the fact is, it's different, I think. You, you can uh, have a go at those big roles when you're young and, you know, get something out of them. You, you, you learn a lot from doing them. Mm-hmm. And you learn a lot from your mistakes in doing them. So um, the English theatre has always been fortunate in that they have this repertoire system and actors like, say, Gielgud or Olivia would uh, play pop roles like Macbeth or King Lear four or five times in their careers. And that's, that's the way you learn. We haven't had that opportunity in Australia until quite recently. If you got to play King Lear or Hamlet once, you were lucky. Right. But um, there was one reason I established the Bell Shakespeare Company in 1990. I thought we'll, have a, we'll build a company and actors will get the chance to come back and play these roles again and again as they get older and build up a tradition of our own. And so that's happened, and I've been lucky. I have played King Lear three times, Richard III three times, Hamlet twice, um, you know, Prospero three times. So I've had a go at those roles again and again, and you just learn so much each time you do them. Like opera singers have their repertoire. They've got four or five roles they specialise in and just keep working away at them until they, you know, perfect them. And I think we're lucky if we can do that in theatre. You use the phrase repertoire system? Mm-hmm. Well, repertoire... We don't really have uh, anymore. We've had several attempts at it, but repertoire means having um, four or five plays um, all in all going at the same time, and you might do one Monday and Tuesday, another one Wednesday, Thursday, another one Friday, Saturday. So you you get the, the same, switch the back and forth. The same that. actors are in all those plays. Uh, now that's very common in England. It always has been. We've had a few attempts here, but it's a very expensive. Uh, operation because you've got actors who aren't in some plays but are still on the payroll. So, um, it, it, and you've got to keep changing the sets around every night, like the opera does. The opera has repertoire. Right. So they'll change the production. You'll do one opera one night, another one the next night. That means you've got twice as many singers as you really need, and you've got to get all the th- expense of changing the stage around every day. So it's he- that's what makes opera so expensive. Plus all the people, of course. You've got 80 musicians in the pit and 80 people on stage, so it's a hugely expensive operation. Do the actors themselves find it very taxing, or do they welcome the change? I think uh, they like it for a while, and then it starts to to grind you down. I did repertoire when I was with the Royal Shakespeare Company. That was all repertoire. And so you were lucky. You got some nights off because you weren't in that particular show. Um, And if you're playing a big role, especially, you wouldn't do it more than three or four times a week. Here... In Australia, if you're playing Hamlet or King Lear, you do it eight times a week, Whoa. and that's a bit of a strain. Is it is it harder to be going through those precise same lines eight times as opposed to be doing three different plays? Um, well, that's what I guess craft is all about and what experience is about. Um, it can get very taxing if you're playing a very big role, as I was say, with King Lear. It was probably the, the hardest and the biggest one. You've just got to pace yourself and motivate yourself every night to be better than last night and say, I can, I can get there and I can do it better than last time. Um, and so that's a constant challenge. It's, it's quite a welcome thing to have a couple of nights off in the week so that you can you know, just sort of uh, recharge the batteries, as it were. Because Lear, Lear specifically is a very intense role. Very, very intense very demanding. It's almost impossible, I think, to bring it off. Not just for the actor playing Lear, but for the director, the whole cast. The, the demands are so great in terms of where you have to go in terms of emotion and uh, you know, the, the cruelty, the absurdity of the whole world is, uh, is a huge thing to, to make, to make uh, real and to sustain it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking now just the, um, just the, the just the bit alone where Leo is yelling at the sky, mm. low winds and crack your cheeks. Yeah, I I I feel like if I were to just just read that up authentically, I'd have to be in bed for three days. Afterwards. That's right. That's right. It is a huge ask. Yeah. Does that that feeling does that um, sort of subside with time, or do you sort of stoke that fire? Do you keep that throwing uh, everything in? You have to keep that. You've got to find new new reasons for doing it that way and keeping it that big but it's a bit like singing you know if you're a singer an operatic aria you just train the voice train the body the muscles to get there and to sustain it and hit those notes every night on cue um, and it's, it's just a matter of, of practice 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 really did you feel when you're especially when you're doing the same role a lot um, and uh, do, you, do you feel a, a sort of um uh, catharsis in, in terms of the correspondence to your own life and what you're going through? You often feel just the frustration of, uh, I didn't get there tonight, that wasn't good enough, 
you know, and I felt that with King Lear every night. You never really get there. And so you come off feeling frustrated. You know, you give yourself so, so many marks out of 10. I think what night was <laughs> six out of 10, last night, last night was four out of 10. Um, the only one I've really experienced what I would call genuine catharsis is um, Prospero in The Tempest. Mm-hmm because he starts the play as this really angry guy who is um, furious with his brother for having deposed him. And uh, so he takes it out on everybody. He, he enslaves people. He, uh, he, he um, dominates people. And when he gets the opportunity and his brother's ship is wrecked on the island and he has the opportunity to take revenge, he's all about, and now I'll have my revenge on all of my enemies. And this is what I've always wanted. And then, at the last moment, his better spirit, Ariel, turns him around and says, if you do that, you'll never leave the island. So you've got to forgive in order to move on. And that's the lesson he has to learn. And he turns around and he forgives everybody and reconciles himself to everybody. And then he's free to leave the island and go back into humanity. And I always come back after that role, feeling purged, cleansed, uh, relaxed, because you go through the process of what it would be like to feel that that uh, rage and then to be able to forgive. That was a wonderful thing to do. It was wonderful. Yeah, it sounds it sounds um, almost like it's constructed to be therapy for the actor. It almost feels like that. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's probably not. It's probably just Shakespeare's instinct, because uh, the audience feels it too. Not just the actor feels it, but the audience feels that relief of yeah. Know, that's how things have to be. If you stay enraged, you stay locked into yourself, you stay in it, you, you remain an island. Right. Mm. Whereas in the, at the end of the year, everyone's supposed to be really upset. Yeah, I am devastated. Yeah. <laughs> devastated. There's nothing much to hope for, you know. Everyone's, everyone's down and out and, you know, it's a few little green shoots in this scorched earth, but, you know, not much hope for the future. And even those green shoots, what is it, the, the oldest, half-born most, we that are young? We'll never see so much or live so long, yeah. That's right, it's kind of, it's, it's a despair, it's like a Greek tragedy, really. The Greeks said that same thing about, you know, uh, let, no, let no man say he is happy until he's dead. Mm. That's, that's an intense line. Yeah. Could, could you unpack what that, that line means for you? Um... That uh, life, for, from that point of view, of, of the Greek trage- tragedian is um, is kind of fruitless. It's a fruitless, pointless struggle, uh, and you're bound to f- find grief and disappointment and uh, pain, and that's all that life is. And when you're in your grave, then you'll be happy. <sighs> Which is one view of life. Right. And maybe for a lot of people in ancient Greece, that was a reality, you know, or a way of dealing with it. Yeah. A bit like, I suppose, existentialist philosophy or the absurdist theatre uh, says, like Waiting for Godot, uh, Godot will never come. There is no hope. You just go on trudging along and waiting, but he'll never come. Uh, the universe is empty. The universe is meaningless. You just have to trudge on hmm. and keep waiting. So this, this, this way of... Um uh, conceiving of, of life is this like this slow decline to the grave all the way through. Mm. I, there's that it's it sort of stands against the um, the sort of high romance of the opposite view where life is this terrific adventure, and it seems like the bard has one foot in either all the time. <laughs> is that I mean? Yeah, that's me that's a very w- good way of putting it. Um, a, a realist, never sentimental about it, uh, and really that that life is. In, as in all his early comedies, it's all about youth and sex and fun and jokes and games and, you know, joy. And then you get the uh, more troubling plays, the more kind of moral dilemma plays, like Measure for Measure, uh, where it's very uh, kind of seedy and ambivalent. Then you get the tragedies, uh, of which Lear, I suppose, is the most, most negative and most bleak. And then he comes back finishes up with the romances at the end, Pericles, Winter's Tale, uh, Cymbeline, and uh, Tempest. And they're all about forgiveness, reconciliation, uh, you'll die, but the next generation is coming up and they'll take over and the world will be better after you've gone. So again, whether if that's just him responding to the theatrical taste of the day or whether it's his own life's journey, 
I'd like to think it's his own life's journey. That yeah. That's where he finished up himself philosophically. Otherwise, I don't know why you'd write those four of those plays saying the same thing, that same message. So I, I, I'd like to think that he went through that, if you like, dark night of the tragedies and then came out the other end and um, you know, found a resolution. Is that something that resonates for you? Yeah, I think that's a good way of <laughs> approaching life. You just hope it works out that way. It's, um, you can't give up hope that you've got to hope the next generation will make things better. And you keep finding signs of it everywhere. And you think how fantastic that young people are taking this course, having that attitude, doing these things, um, repairing the damage that the last generation did. <laughs> yeah. You see it all the time. I mean, every, every new movement to do with, like Me Too, for instance, right now, and uh, young people's concern with the environment and climate change and issues that really affect them, mm. that we have managed to stuff up, in, you know, our, our last generations have. So I keep looking at that and seeing young talent, young ambition, young creativity, and think, yeah, there, there are lots of green shoots lots coming of, up. Lots of green shoots. Mm. When you say um, they, these green shoots, I, I, I recall just what you said uh, a couple of minutes ago about um, at the end of King Lear, you have some green shoots, but they're sparse. And, yeah. And that line, um, uh, the, the oldest hath born most. Yeah. We the young. young. Will never see so much or live so long. There's a sort of, um, I see it as a sort of uh, twin, twin despair in a sense. The first despair for like the older generation who, who almost all dead or, mm. or blind or horribly disfigured by that yeah. point. And there's this sort of regret that for the next generation, even if they manage to have a quiet life that isn't beset by that level of suffering. Um, there's still there's still something tragic about that because mm. they won't get to have the 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 big picture the big vision the uh, well yeah yeah the big the big suffering or whatever but uh, yeah life will be reduced life will be more banal in some way mm. yeah I, I feel like the the uh, that is sort of very um, very pertinent now because I I feel that the um, you know, we the previous generations. I mean, even within living history, you know, they had like World War Two in a sense. Even if it was you know, horrible, horrible, horrible on the ground, you had this sense that we are the good guys, we're fighting the bad guys. Mm. There's, there's a sort of um, uh, dramatic arc to it. Whereas I feel that a lot of people today just feel lost in this 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 vague, banal haze of day to day palliatives. Mm. And you know they don't suffer as much, say, as their grandfathers did. But they, um, nor do they have that that sort of direction. Nor do they have that sort of uh, purpose and, and drive to their lives. Mm. Yes, I think, uh, as you say, the the, the the enemy in World War Two was very very uh, well identified. Fascism was so unmasked and so um, you know um, unapologetic. It was just that that was it. Whereas today, uh, it's hard to tell who are the good guys who are the bad guys. In, in, in all the conflicts around the world, looking at today, uh, you have to look at both sides of every argument, every, every dispute. And there's so many confusions in the Middle East, for instance, the, you know, what's happening around with the yeah. so many groups infighting and within groups infighting. Uh, you just think, how will they ever sort out this mess of, um, you know? And find some reconciliation or some way forward. It's just that's that's more baffling. Um, it's, it's not as clear cut as, as World War Two was. Does it seem when you're working with younger actors uh, that there's a there's a marked difference in disposition that that goes along those lines in some way? Do you see that the younger generations don't have that uh, single-minded drive as they did before? I don't think so. I think. Um, they, like the rest of us, are kind of um, baffled by the political situation landscape and tend, like most of us, to say, well, let's hope the politicians can sort it out because we can't do anything. Right. You do feel powerless. Um, I think you'd be disinclined to, to sign up for military service because you don't exactly know who you're going to end up fighting for. Are we fighting for Donald Trump? Or who are we fighting for? You know, uh, So there's, there's a, a lack of of uh, patriotic fervour that you found in World War One and World War Two. World War One, particularly, soldiers were so naive then about you know what they were fighting for. I had no idea. Uh, so it'd be harder now, I think, to um, to um, uh, 
con people into going to fight, you know. Um, and they are more, I would say, anxious about the, the bigger issues of, um, of uh, well, I guess climate change is one of the, the largest ones, but also um, the, uh, of the, the rampant unfairness of, uh, of um, incomes and um, uh, opportunities. Uh, this huge dispute now about education and how, where that should be heading and how to handle education. There's a lot of issues day to day that young people are concerned about, mm. and they tend to leave the bigger issues to the politicians to try and you know waffle their way through. I think. Yeah, sure. When when someone comes to uh, the stage, and if someone someone walks in the door and you think, oh, this is someone I really want to work with, mm. what is it? What is it that? Uh, that you notice there, what works? I think it's the thing you just said. This is someone I really want to work with. Someone who looks interesting and someone who's a bit a bit different, who's original, who obviously has um, a, a hunger for what they want they're going to do. Um, you can't always pick it. Sometimes you knock back somebody, and then four or five years later they're, they're starring in something and they right. proved you were wrong. That does happen uh, from time to time. Um, what you don't want is people who are. Um, Kind of resistant to 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 taking um, to a conversation or to taking uh, advice. You don't want people who are obviously um, um, going to be make life difficult for people in the company because of their temperament. Um, and you don't want people who are just a bit too ordinary. You think, well, no, uh, we need something that's going to really set a spark on the stage and get catch people's interest. Mm. Um, and you know that um, some people have not much uh, in the way of uh, intellectual equipment, but they've got a sort of a, a, a native instinct for performing, for acting, for, for showbiz. That is, not, that is not an intellectual exercise, it's something more basic. Some people can combine both, that's fine, but that's not, it's not necessarily um, the end point that you've got to be a, you know, um, a big thinker. Yeah. You mentioned at the beginning of the uh, of the conversation that the Shakespeare in your time wasn't taught very well, and you hope mm. it's taught better now. Uh, when you're when you're teaching, when you're trying to train the next generation, do you uh, do you have a sort of philosophy of, of uh, theatrical education? Well, I think the best way we can do it is as actors is to go into the classrooms and perform it. And um, and simply bring it to life through performance. That's the, that's the thing that most a lot of kids will, will never see any other performance than that. They won't go to theatre when they leave school, and that might be their only encounter with live performance. Mm. Um, so when I started the Bell Shakespeare Company in 1990, I said we have to have an education wing from the very beginning. Well, people send actors out into the classroom and do that, and show. For instance, you can play a speech or a scene in a couple of different ways. It's not just one correct way, but there's different interpretations possible, and that's where the actor's uh, intelligence and skill comes in into analysing and weighing up and not following the obvious course. And that was a bit of a shock, of course, to some teachers and kids that there were there were there were choices to be made. There wasn't just one correct way. We start often taught in school: this is the right answer. That's the wrong right. answer. He said, no, no, there's no right or wrong. There are possibilities. Let's explore them. Um, and the main thing is to make the language as clear and simple and accessible as possible. And so we've, uh, the company now, I've left the company now after 25 years, but the company now has um, performances for um, primary school kids, very young ones, uh, who love the language because it's so um, odd and quirky and interesting and uh, unusual and they bounce the words around among themselves so when they get older the words are no longer a challenge or a, a barrier they're something they're familiar with mm. so uh, I think the sending actors into the classroom uh, is the best way we can as actors can, can help get it off the page and uh, on its feet and even more so encourage kids to do it themselves once you start saying the words yourself and moving in the space and acting with other people then it starts bringing it to life. Once they are actually moving it through and saying it through themselves. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, relating to each other, saying it to somebody. If you're hurling an insult at somebody or making a joke at somebody, it's it's good to have the other person there to, to bounce it off and to right. feel the, the, the visceral impact of what the language can do. 
is that something that uh, sort of scales as you get as you get uh, deeper and deeper into the craft? Do you find that the importance of um, having a, a partner in dialogue is is maintained and grows? Yes, um, and you have to try to build up a relationship with the other actors so that there's not just what you're saying and doing, there's a sort of a hidden subtext, if you like, which is the actors playing games with each other um, through their own experience of each other and their knowledge of each other's um, timing or, or um, temperament. There's a, a double thing happening. Mm. I've just done this play with John Gaydon at um, the ensemble called Diplomacy. Uh, it's virtually a two-hander. There are other smaller roles, but most of the plays just the two of us. Now, John and I started acting in 1959 at um, City University, so we've been, uh, you know, around a while and have acted together quite, quite often. So now we know each other so well that, as well as just doing the words and the play, there's a, another secret kind of communication going on, like mm-hmm. between two old friends, and that's right. got another layer to it. Uh, so which is which is quite a pleasant thing to do. The audience is aware of it; they're not quite sure where the play ends and the relationship begins. That they're they're interwoven. Right. That's quite good. The, but uh, if you're acting a soliloquy, so that's always a two hand. You're always saying it to the audience and playing it off the audience. You're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it to them and asking them questions and asking them to pass judgment on what you're saying. So it's always a colloquy. Ah, so even <clears throat> when you're when you're doing a monologue, mm. it's um, in a sense the what I guess in a Freudian sense the 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 audience is your superego. Yeah, that's very much the case, and you can see that um, I was lucky enough to go on stage at the Globe Theatre in London. Um, I was being shown around, and I was allowed to go on stage and, and try it out. Um, and when you walk through the curtain onto that stage, you're, you're shocked by the audience being all around you at your feet in all the galleries surrounding you so they've got this massive crowd mm. uh, on all levels and the only way you can perform is to act to them and speak to them speak to people down there speak to people up there speak to people over there so you're on the move the whole time and right. it's always for the audience um, and that was a, a bit of a revelation as to how how much uh, it, it, it's not a, a, an internal as a, an internalization it's all about um, getting it out there and and talking to the audience and looking for their reaction. If you're uh, practicing a soliloquy by yourself, does it still feel like a dialogue? Does it feel like you have to imagine it to be that way? You have to imagine your audience, and often in rehearsal, you'll um, sit down and do it to somebody. I might sit down and say it all to you mm. and look for your reactions while I'm sp- speaking it to you, um, and then I just enlarge that circle, if you like, to be the whole audience that I'm talking to and looking for their reactions. But it's never an internal thing. For the, for the actor in a Shakespeare play, the soliloquy is a, a breakout, if you like. He's playing the scene with people and then everybody leaves and then he starts talking to the audience. Hamlet says, you know, now I'm alone. All right, now I can talk to you and tell you what I really think. Uh, and that's a, a big release. So the, the, the soliloquies are really the highlights of the play, really. They're the when you get really inside the character's mind. Mm-hmm. That is being honest for once. He might be being devious with the other people, but when they leave, he's honest with the audience. Right. Well, there's a line in, in Hamlet that uh, I'm just reminded of where he says, um, my father, I think I see my father. Mm. Where, so in, in my mind's eye. Mm. And, I'm, and I'm wondering if that, that notion of the um, being able to, to project that image of, of the, the father in some sense is uh, central to the... When when you talk about imagining the dialogue when you're when you're doing your soliloquy, is that does that is that a capacity that you that you sort of notice yourself independently honing as an actor the ability to project and then speak to the projection? Uh, yes, it's um, you, it's not really um, you don't really believe you're doing it. It's, it's a conscious technical thing you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he's really saying, he doesn't actually mean. I can see my father. He's thinking, I can remember him, I can imagine him, I can, I can you know... He's not actually being literal about that. <laughs> not <Yeah>. yet. <laughs> One scene later. That's right. right. Horatio thinks he is because he says, what, where? Uh, he, he says, well, in, in here. That's where I can see him, you know. I didn't really see him, I'm just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So he, he explains it that way. Is there a danger, though, with that, of, um, of going too far and focusing on the... 
projection and losing the actual dialogue with the audience? Do you see that happening a lot? Um, I can't. I don't quite understand that. Well, it, it's it's sort of um, the 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 paradox that I guess you were getting at uh, in some form before is when you say. Um, like when you were doing diplomacy just now mm. with John Gadden, mm. um, you you guys have been performing together for over fifty years, mm. so you know each other as people very deeply, yeah. and you understand each other's acting tics very deeply. And so, um, if there's a uh, if the, if when you're speaking to him, it's it's happening on multiple levels. One level is your um, your speaking to him in character; it's your character and his character, and another. Another level is you and he saying, "Oh well, isn't this fun? Here we are again." Yes. Doing another piece. Yes. Is there a um, is there a sense in which, when you're focusing on um, him as a character, if you if you lose him as a as a person underneath it, then the then the whole thing sort of crumbles. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. If 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 you've been if the rehearsal has been good and you've been directed well and you both know exactly what you're doing, um, that doesn't become a problem. Mm-hmm. The only the only thing might be that you might get a bit too relaxed with each other and yeah. lose the tension. Um, so you've got just a reminder of what, what are the stakes in the scene, what are we really here for? Let's not get too relaxed and too chummy. We've got a, sort of, got a, a situation here. These two people really don't like each other. Let's not lose sight of that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Especially with your, your latest work. Yeah. An actual dialogue between a Swiss and a, a German, German officer. Officer, yes, yes. This reminds me of something you um, mentioned once. Uh, you were giving a workshop at the University of Sydney for the Dramatic Society, and you mentioned um, uh, Declan Donnellan's *The Actor and the Target*. Mm. And you were talking about the primacy of having a target in the, in the scene. So, if you've lost your passport, for instance, like that's what the scene is about. The scene yes. is about the the passport. Yeah. Um, so in that in that sense, is that um, that primacy is what is what creates and sustains the tension, even as you're underneath that, you're very casual and free. Is yes. That, is that yes on the right track? Uh, yes, it is. Um, well, if you go, if, just take that moment in diplomacy, for instance. Sure. Um, what the diplomat is there for is to try and persuade the, the general, the German general, not to take certain actions. Um, but the way he does that is through um, devious means, through flattery, through cajoling, through telling lies, through all sorts of, all the ingredients, what you might call diplomacy. So he has to be very aware of all the tactics he's using. Um, and uh, um, we can't lose sight of those, and we can't lose sight of what's at stake if he fails in any of, in any of those mm-hmm. tactics. And that's 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 the target. That's what's the target. Is, his, his target is me. He has to say, "How do I change this man's mind?" This man says, "I've got orders. I'm going to obey them. And no matter what you say, I won't change my mind." So his target is, "How do I shift the target from there to there and make him do a 360 degree turn?" Mm-hmm. What means can I use? I'll try flattery. I'll try bullying. I'll try lying. I'll try, uh, you know, all these various things. They're all about moving the target and then so it's a very very clear cut case very obvious example right and, and then from your side when you're sort of playing defence so to speak what's yes. your target my target is I suppose to uh, well it's it's largely um, def- deflecting a lot of it but also it's um, to make him see that um, uh, he has no no no, um, no chance that uh, some of his arguments are specious. Um, he accuses me of committing war crimes. Well, how about the Allies? How about their war crimes? What, what you've done to us? So I have to find ways of trying to deflect uh, mm-hmm. his his accusations, but also throw them back at him and and uh, and let him see that you know, he's not he doesn't hold the moral high ground that he thinks he does. Right. Is there a um is there a sense in which you you have to be aware of your own motives being hidden, or that is to say, the character's motives being hidden from the character himself? Um, I think in in that particular play, the the motives are on the table from the beginning. Uh, I've come to make you change your mind. I'm not going to change my mind, whatever you say. So they're they're both. There's not much um, 
disagreement about what the what the what the uh, the objectives are. Right. The only, uh, I suppose, um, ambivalent part is what tactics the diplomat uses that are not above board. They're not all straight. They're not all honest. They are. He's going to smoke and mirrors to get his get what he wants. Right. Well, if that's the case, why why is your character even speaking to John Gaydon's character? Because he he intrigues me and it keeps making me talk. I say, shut up, sit down, don't talk. Then he'll say some little thing that makes me hang on. You can't get away with that. So I'm right. I'm dragged back into the conversation. The more he can bring me into the conversation and keep me talking, the more chance he has of turning me around. Right. If I was just stonewalled and didn't reply, he'd have no way through. So he keeps throwing baits at me to make me react and 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 come back into the argument. And while I'm arguing, then he's still got a chance of changing me, which he does eventually. Your run of diplomacy for this uh, season has just come to an end. Yes. Um, it was sold out and very well received. Um, you're uh, already planning to do it again next year? Yes, they, they want to bring the play back for a return season at the ensemble and then perhaps take it on tour to four or five places. Fantastic. Mm. Do, uh, is, is the schedule already... No, they're still working out the schedule at the moment. Still working it out. Yeah. Okay. And do you know? Is there an estimate for when tickets will be on sale? Oh, I think right away. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. So the tickets? I think they're selling tickets now. Even though they year. don't have the schedule yet. Well, I think the schedule at the independent at, at the ensemble is worked out. Right. The, the tour is they're still putting that together. I think the season is pretty well. Yeah. yeah pretty well determined. Mm. Wow. And if, if people want to buy tickets to next I think they can. Show, I think they can. And what's the best way to do that? Just ring the box office. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, ensemble theatre box office. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and when when is the play going to happen next, next uh, year? It's next June, May, June. Mm-hmm. Mm. I can't give the exact date, but it's May, June. Sure. Yeah. Uh, there's, if we circle back around to uh, the idea of education, Shakespeare and education... Mm. When you're working with young, uh, young people and, and their earliest sort of tentative steps into Shakespeare, do you find that you have a favourite play or favourite set of plays that works really well for that? Uh, yes. Um, I wouldn't throw them straight into, say, Troilus and Cressida or Measure for Measure or some of those much more knotty and complex plays. Um, they, they, they respond very strongly to uh, Macbeth because the imagery is so strong and so potent. Uh, they, they certainly respond well to Romeo and Juliet because it's all about them and that age of teenage sort of ebullience. Um, they, they respond to nearly all of them, I'd say. There are just some you keep up your sleeve for later down the track, uh, which I'm, the, the, the language is knottier and harder and the, the, uh, the characters are more ambivalent and mm-hmm. hard to read. In in Macbeth or Romeo and Juliet, would you do the whole play with them, or would you pick a couple of scenes? Oh, a couple of scenes, I think. And what what sort of scenes from those would you? Uh, I think what what scene you find the most exciting? What what scene really gets you going? And uh, let's choose that one and work on it and pull it apart and put it together again. Oh, so it's very much you leave it up to the individual groups to sort of pick one. Pick yeah, one. to the to the mentor, whoever's in charge. So we'll find a scene that the kids are going to really respond to. Mm-hmm. And do that, and then so now, how do we get there? What what was the story up to that point, or what happens after that? Get them intrigued with a climactic situation that's mm-hmm. exciting or amusing or something, and then you can then you can retrace your steps and say, what's the whole story about now? Go, go and read the rest of it. Okay, fantastic. And for the people who um, for the people in the in these groups who aren't necessarily going on into to a career in theatre, mm. what does that Experience when it goes well. What does that with that experience that Russian theatre give them? Well, uh, a sense of achievement. I think we do a lot of work with um, indigenous kids, and um, they um, first of all they enjoy being taken seriously and given the opportunity to do this kind of thing. And uh, so we've, been, we've enjoyed, for instance, um, going to a, a, a community and taking a play like Tempest and uh, exploring the issues in the play like colonialism and slavery and um, uh, prejudice. Or uh, we did uh, an exercise with Romeo and Juliet and the the town that we went into was quite divided between the various tribal groups. So there's a situation there that they could relate to. And we got the police involved, being sort of um, driving the police car around, breaking up the riot, 
we got all the aunties and uncles. What is it? Put the weapons down? Yeah, put the weapons down. Yeah, we, had, we used the police car and the policemen to do that. Wow. All the aunties and uncles made the costumes and helped with the... So the whole community got involved in telling the story. And they, they changed the names of the characters to Aboriginal names. But they made it all about themselves. That's beautiful. So um, Was that well received? Very, very well received, yeah. And did that... I mean, just, just a hunch that sort of comes to me is did that allow them to change their own framing of the intertribal relationships? We don't know uh, how long the effect was. Right. It certainly opened the door for that. Mm-hmm. And we could see and talk about it, talk about it openly in terms of the, what the characters did and, you know, whether they were right or wrong. So it opens the door to that sort of discussion. Um, and that's very important, I think. Um, it also gives kids a sense of empowerment and, and um, an achievement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do work in juvenile justice centres and, and juvenile prisons. And I said to one kid there, what do you get out of doing uh, Shakespeare? And he said, well, when I come out there and perform Mark Antony in front of my, um, my parents or my parole officer or whoever, I feel I've done something classy, something difficult, and I feel good about myself. And um, uh, when I feel good about myself, I start feeling better towards other people. Mm. So um, that was interesting, that he could relate that to a sense of achievement, a sense of, um, yeah, some sort of pride in himself, I suppose. Right. Do you feel like there are parts of the soul that theatre and theatre alone can ferret out and get to? Um, Yes, I do. I know a lot of people who who go to the theatre, I'm talking about audiences now, Mm -hmm. who come to me and say, um, you know, theatre's a very important thing for them. They They might be lonely in themselves or... They're just theatre nuts, they just love theatre, but they find something in theatre they don't get from anywhere else. They don't get it from cinema or television, certainly. They find live performances really, really exciting. Um, and the uniqueness that each performance is different to every other performance. They relate to that. Um, and I think also for people doing it, um, there, is no, there is no comparison to any other activity. It's the... the the work you put into creating a role, the um, the challenge of it, the the joy you get out of performing it is, uh, is what keeps us all at it. Yeah, sure. When you look back on a, a, a uh, an extraordinarily successful career in, in a theatre, and and as uh, uh, on your life that went along with that, the the personal aspects of it, do you feel a sense of um, looking back on it like it is uh, like a, a, a particular sense of affiliation with a Shakespearean character? Like, this is who I feel like? Um, you, you feel that with many of them mm. from time to time. Do you have a pet favourite? Uh, I suppose with, you'd ask most actors, they'd say Hamlet's the one you keep coming back to because um, he sort of matures during the play. Yeah. He starts out as a as an 18-year-old student or, or whatever he is when he, when he first to see him, young Hamlet. By the end of the play, the grave digger says, um, I've been here ever since the day young Hamlet was born. I've been here 30 years. See, oh, so now Hamlet's 30. He started when he was 18. No, so the play hasn't taken that long. <laughs> um, all it means is he's matured. He's grown over that period. He's grown from a, a university student to a fully conscious, you know, mature adult. Mm-hmm. And so I guess when you're playing the role, when you first play it when you're very young, you play with a lot of uh, rage and anger and, and effort. As you get older, you sort of get more mellow with it and more philosophical and more reflective. Uh, and so it's a part you can measure yourself against every 10 years in your life and say, how am I doing? Right. Where am I at in my life journey? As Hamlet does, in that short space of time, he goes through everything you could possibly experience in a lifetime. Right, right. That's, and when was your last Hamlet? <laughs> Long time ago, but I've directed it many times since. Right. And, and you do read it and think about it, and you can still measure yourself against it without having actually to perform it. You can still, in your head, perform it or, or reflect on it. Okay. If I, I, please, please let me know if I'm, if I'm pressing too hard no, here, but no. I did notice that you said, um, well, if you ask many actors that say Hamlet, for you... John Bell. Yeah. Is there... Oh, I think that's the one why I said that one would be the one I would most relate to and think about. It's still got the most ambiguity, more, more different ways of interpreting 
unlike, say, Henry V is pretty straight down the middle. Mm. And it does yeah. have so many dark and grey and, and, and interesting areas, you know, to explore. And the, the, the very, if you think of how many a man holding a skull, right. and that's the image, you know, looking at life, looking at death, looking at what's it all about, you know. I guess that's the iconic image that sums up what the character's doing. He's looking right into the, the heart of things. The grave digger with the skull of Yarrow. Yeah, well, Hamlet with the skull. Oh, Hamlet with the yeah, skull. Yeah, right. He takes it from the grave and, and contemplates it and so measures his life against what that thing is, you know. Is there uh, something that uh, springs to mind as something, a new dimension of Hamlet that's opened up for you recently or that you've been toying with recently? Um, I saw a performance uh, on television by that actor who was Doctor Who. Uh, I can't think of his name. One of the last Doctor Whos. Uh, I should know it. I can't think of it. I, I can hear everyone on the other end screaming yeah, yeah, at no, us. Yeah, they say That's right. Uh, anyway, it's David somebody, and he was Doctor Who. And what I was saying was that uh, he was the first person I saw. Then what I was seeing, who after he'd seen the ghost, was different. Mm-hmm. He was never the same again. Most Hamlets see the ghost, have a bit of a sort of a fit, of, uh, you know, and then they go back to normal again. He didn't. He stayed kind of a bit crazy after that. I think, well, that makes sense. Mm. If you did see your father's ghost, and it was absolutely real and genuine, you believed it, you couldn't go back to normal life altogether. Your life would be changed in some way. That's interesting. I, I feel like that's something that... It's it's so obvious when you said when you pointed out I said well mm. obviously you can't just proceed mm. but then it's so it's so hard to actually do every every scene from then on with this scene has all these motivations plus by the way you just saw your dad that's right ghost. that's right if yeah. you add that to it what's it done to him how has it twisted his his um, feeling about um, well immortality if there mm. are ghosts then you know it's not just not just a handful of dust there is something else. Right. And yet I've been taught not to believe that. I've been taught at university um, to question all those things. So he's, he's caught, bet- at Wittenberg, he's caught right. between uh, an old system of belief and a, and a new one, a new age. Right. Uh, well, he, he certainly, I mean, there are hints at that throughout where he has the opportunity, for instance, to kill Claudius and doesn't because yes. yes. he's praying. And, and he rationalises it, uh, saying, well, I, I'll, I'll wait till he's uh, committing some dreadful sin and then I'll send him to hell, which is a very old-fashioned, medieval, Catholic way of thinking of revenge. In fact, I don't think that's his real reason. His real reason, he just, can't, he just can't do it. David Tennant. David Tennant. Uh, that's who it was. We got it. it was David Tennant. And he, this is, David Tennant was the Hamlet here. Thanks, Anna. Yes. David he Tennant was the one who was changed by seeing the ghost. He was never quite the same. There's something mm-hmm. crazy in his eyes from there on. Oh, that's well, I say crazy, but looking up, looking through things mm. differently. And then there's there's of course the um, the point later where he says, "Oh, that the everlasting had not set his cannon against self slaughter." Yeah, which again implies that he takes the whole thing quite seriously. Yes, the 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 care of his soul in some sense. Mm. And which I guess also um, uh, fleshes out the the last speech he does to Horatio because that's traditionally done with like a lot of um, a lot of uh, just just this sort of calm conviction. You know, there's providence in the absolutely. Force, there's the sparrow. Yes, fatalistic. And also that that seems to work a lot better with the the same vision. Yes, but but to push back on it a little, would it? Um, I, I, I'm trying to remember where I heard this. I heard something recently that if you um, if you were to truly encounter the divine and be moved and rocked by it, and then to return to everyday life, you'd be out of it for a while, and then you'd sort of it just sort of fade into the background, and mm. life would go on. And I'm I'm wondering. I mean, a life spent in theatre, there must have been moments for you that were just there in in a profound way which must have been really hard to carry forward into life afterwards, no? Oh, not, not that profound. Not, no. like, not like seeing your father's ghost. Nothing, nothing, like nothing that as profound as that. Some highly extraordinary, exciting moments. Yes, that does, it does make... You, you do relish them and, th- and think about them and um, try to recreate them, I suppose, for yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, so many saints or mystics of all religions have, have been transported or seen things or, yeah. you know, and, and then had to return to the... And do they ever, well, were those things real or were they just fantasizing? Um, and were they ever, ever really normal in the first place? <laughs> it's hard to say. 
did you uh, did you end up getting involved in the, the sort of um, visionary aspects of the 60s at all? No. That wasn't your scene? No, it wasn't my scene at all. Theater was, no, theater I'm, was too, I'm too reticent, too, too conservative for all of that. Right. I'm quite glad I didn't. Okay. A lot of my friends were damaged by that. Damaged by it? Well, you know, especially the, the, the drug scene, the, mm-hmm. all of that, yeah. What is that? Very dangerous. What is it, Ginsberg says? That I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. Yeah. Mm. It's a tough thing to go through. The theatre world especially must have been sort of a particularly volatile place to be in those times. Um, I, not in my experience, because I was working mostly with older people when I was, when I was with the, uh, first the old tape company and then the Royal Shakespeare Company. I was one of the youngest people there, so most of the people I was working with and who I admired were um, you know, people in their 40s and 50s. And they were much more conservative, and uh, you know, they went into all that scene at all. If I'd been in, the, in a musician, say in, in the rock scene, I might well have been whisked away and uh, you know, blown up. But uh, I was working in a fairly, fairly con- conservative circles right. in those companies. They were well established, and uh, and the people in them were pretty responsible and mature, Fair. and and some very good role models among them. People I really admired and tried to um, you know, learn from them, not just how to act, but how to deport oneself in the industry by being punctual, reliable, knowing your lines, showing respect, you know, hard, working hard, all of that. Do you have a particular uh, legacy or a way you want to be remembered? <laughs> no, not particularly. Um, but that thing about, as I said about, the green shoots is important to me, so... Um, I have set up this uh, foundation uh, on the central coast where we live half the time, uh, the Booty Foundation for the Arts, which is all about um, encouraging young people from that area on the peninsula uh, in all creative uh, fields, uh, pop singers, rock singers, opera singers, um, musicians, filmmakers, painters, actors, writers, whatever. Um, and we raise money to support them to do go to go to um, workshops or go overseas or take courses or make recordings or whatever, and so um, that's very um, fulfilling. Mm. Because we get about thirty applicants every year, and we tend to try, we try to favour the more disadvantaged ones among them who have showed promise. Uh, we work with NASDA, the Aboriginal Dance College, mm-hmm. uh, and help some of their students. Um, and um, it's very satisfying when you see people given a bit of help how, how fast it can um, take effect and, and help launch their next stage of their career yeah, that's cool. exciting and you, you know we, we touched very briefly upon um, some of the things that these green shoots are going to have to mm. deal with and, and remedy and rectify mm. and so I, I suppose a lot of them are just hot talking points and um, you know, commonly discussed is there a particular uh, sort of niche for you that you think, oh, that would be a lot better if it were just made made a bit better, that there's a room for improvement? Do you have a vision of a, of a better world that's, you know, has a, has a particular personal twist for you? Oh, look, there are so many, aren't there? We've, we've seen <clears throat> some breakthroughs recently with uh, equal marriage, for instance. Um, there's so many landmark things either happening or, or uh, hopefully will happen, like peace on the North Korean Peninsula, for instance, right. possibly. Crazy There's so many good things that are, uh, are happening or about to happen or people that want to happen. Um, that it's, uh, I, I, you can't really prioritise those, I think. Um, uh, one rejoices in seeing things like the Royal Commission into this financial industry, what, what that's exposing and hopefully going to repair and make better. There, there's a lot of um, people with integrity working in all, the, in all those areas that are trying to make things better, I think. And hopefully young people can take some heart from that and not think that the world is a, you know, a load of crap after all. But, uh, you know, things can be made better. People have good intentions. They are trying to improve things and um, ensure justice and, and you know, reconciliation and all sure. those things. And if, if you had one message to give to the next generation of Shakespearean thespians, what would that be? Just get up and do it. Keep on doing it. You'll, you'll teach yourself. You'll learn by yourself. Uh, I, I guess the important thing is that I think 
uh, work with people who are better than yourself. Work with the best directors, the best actors, and that will, that will bring out the best in you. Always try to find people better than yourself. Jandam. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Great pleasure. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.